Our great God and Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning that you had a plan to adopt us into your family. And we are forever grateful for that. Lord Jesus Christ, we admire you. We are in awe of who you are. You lived a perfect life and qualified to be our Savior, dying for our sins on the cross. Holy Spirit, we marvel at the fact that you are holy and yet indwell us. Teach us this morning and help us to listen to you. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, we owe you everything. Amen. Just a word to the guys in the tech. I have two remotes. I don't know how I ended up with two. I'll just ask you to put up a slide whenever it comes. Thank you. Well, before I came here, I was an associate pastor at a church in California. There came a time when my boss turned against me. That's a long story. Not going to go there. Uh, 20 years ago, it seemed as if my boss had the ability to um, remove me from ministry, blacklist me, and keep me out of ministry. It was hard, it was heavy, it was real. It had happened before to other people, I found out. This was not a, a, a story of my imagination. It, it was real. During that time, I learned to pray. The, as the Holy Spirit schooled me in, in prayer, I noticed that I did not pray that God would change my circumstance. I did not change that God would remove, would remove him, the other guy, or change him necessarily. Uh, I found myself in a circumstance that I did not want and I did not create, and yet it was there I was able to meet God in new and a deeper way. I often woke up in fear in the middle of the night, and uh, rather than just laying there for hours on end, I found another place in the house to pray. And it was there that I learned to pray on my knees. Hadn't done that much before. Humble and dependent upon God. I realized then that I, I liked being humble. I didn't like being humbled big difference. I did not seek answers. I did not seek change. I sought the Lord. My prayers were foundational, basic, simple, childlike, not childish, but childlike. Dear God, could you tell me again that you love me? Jesus, could you be present with me now? Holy Spirit, enable me to be God's man. Real simple, real basic, life-changing. There have been times when God, I think, has spoken directly to me and dropped a, a very intelligent, wise, spiritual thought in my mind. 
I did not find answers during this season. I take it that God's presence is better than answers. God's presence is better than blessings. God's presence is better than getting what you want because his presence is what you need. I desperately needed to know that Jesus was with me. And no doubt about it, I discovered he was. So after praying that way for, I don't know, it could have been an hour, I got up, went back to bed, went to sleep, and all was good until the next night. When I did it all over again. Hmm. In those moments, I found I was stripped of self-confidence and self-reliance, something that I have learned to run from to this day, or to run away from. Uh, God have affirmed his presence with me. I knew from the Bible that God loved me, got that, understood that. I also knew from the Bible that God was for me, got that. And I even think I understood the presence of God always with me, but I needed that experience. See, when the Holy Spirit tutored me in the school of prayer, he took education and combined it with experience and changed my life in that way. Sometimes it's not enough for you to be in the classroom. You need to be in the lab where it's experiential and perhaps even hard and heavy. And that's okay. There's no way I could have learned the lessons I learned about uh, God and his unwavering commitment to be with me simply in the classroom. I had to learn this by way of experience. I think some of you are there this morning. Perhaps there's an item or two that God wants to disclose to you or teach you, an experience that he wants to be with you, and you just simply need to recognize what it is that God is accomplishing in your life. Sometimes it is our weakness that prepares us for intimacy with God. Stripped of our self-confidence, we finally attain the posture that we should have embraced long ago. We seek the Lord. And it's our intimacy that helps us to understand the transcendence of God. So intimacy meaning drawing close to God. Transcendence meaning realizing that although God dwells in all immensity, he can be present with you in the darkness of your closet. God watches over the universe and he watches over you at the very same time. And it is easy for him to do that. Well, in John chapter 6, as uh, we had read this morning, Jesus adds experience to education. They have been taught and mentored and discipled by Jesus for about two years now. And he puts them into a position where everything they seem to know 
about God and following Jesus either falls apart or just plain doesn't work in their hard and heavy situation. And so I suggest again that as we look at this passage, just a simple observation looking at it from big picture, there are simply times when God has to move you out of the classroom and into the lab in order to teach the life lessons that you need to know. We've, we learned this in a, in, a, in a general sense. We know that if you want to pray, at some point in time, you've got to stop reading books and you have to do some praying. If you want to evangelize, at some point in time, the, the books that are, that are helpful need to be set aside and you just simply have to open your mouth and talk gospel words to somebody. If you want to experience worship as we did this morning, you know what? You can watch church online, but by golly, at times... Maybe even most of the time, maybe even all the time, you need to be in the room with God's people, worshiping with your brothers and sisters in Christ. There's no way you can read about that in a book and enjoy the experience that we just enjoyed. Well, in John chapter 6, in the incident of walking on water, I, I want to give it to you this way. I think there are four movements in, in this great uh, event that took place. There is a setting, and that would be the disciples rowing on the Sea of Galilee. There is a crisis, and that is a wind that is overwhelming. There is a climax, and that is Jesus walking on water and identifying himself. And there is a resolution. Jesus is received into the boat, and they make it safely to shore. Here's the setting. This is about halfway through the ministry of Jesus Christ. So that's easy to miss because we're reading along and we just finished John chapter 5 and here we are in John chapter 6. Wow, we've got 15 more chapters to go. Well, actually, the, the corollary passage in the Gospel of Matthew has it in chapter 14. A lot has happened. If you trace through, you could read online, for instance, you could, why don't you Google this, Harmony of the Gospels. And you might find that the Blue Letter Bible is one of those that pops up first. And you can see where events occur in the Gospel of Matthew, where they occur in, in Mark and, and in Luke and in John. And, and then we have these big gaps between John chapter 2 and John chapter 3. And that's filled in as you look at the, the, uh, the other Gospels writers. Wow, they include a lot of detail that John did not in the early ministry days of Jesus Christ. So here we are. Contemporary with Matthew 14, we find ourselves in John chapter 6. At this point in time, Jesus has already been rejected as Messiah. Jesus has revealed himself as the Son of God. Jesus has claimed deity and he has demonstrated deity by the time we get to John chapter 6. Jesus has chosen 12 apostles. He has sent them out on what we might call a short-term mission trip. They have gone. They have come back. Jesus has debriefed with them. All of that has already occurred. Super easy to miss is John chapter 6 verse 4. We read this last time we were together, so let's back up. This is not in what was read this morning. John chapter 4 this is in the setting, uh, the previous setting where Jesus fed the multitude of people bread. He just simply created bread. But in John chapter 6 of verse 4, there's this little side note. It looks like a parenthesis that doesn't matter at all, but it matters a great deal. It just simply reads this. The Jewish Passover feast was near. That's important because Jesus is in Galilee and he will stay away from Jerusalem. He will be in Galilee 
during this Jewish Passover feast. The Passover was the biggest Jewish festival of the year. And one of the reasons why there's even a crowd of people for, for Jesus to feed is that pilgrims are on their way to Jerusalem. They don't, want to be, they don't want to miss the Passover. They want to be in Jerusalem for the Passover. They had limited food supplies they traveled, and so Jesus creates bread for the multitude. But this also means that Jesus bypassed the Passover. The Jewish Messiah was not in Jerusalem for the biggest religious day in the biggest religious city in this particular year. That means things are changing. Jesus came not to celebrate the Passover, but to be the Passover lamb. Jesus came not to attract crowds, but to develop disciples. All of that is going on right now. John chapter 6 represents a huge chapter in the gospel, or a huge change in the gospel of John. Things are changing. Shift, this is a shift that involves not just hard teaching, and we'll look at that next week, but hard times, a hard circumstance, and that's the disciples wondering if they're even going to make it across the sea. Okay, so John 14, 22. Let's, let's go ahead and bring that up. I dare not touch these mechanisms in front of me. John chapter, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 14. This is the corollary passage. Boy, isn't that neat how you can do that? You just flip through those things and it lands right on the appropriate verse. Here we are, verse 22 and verse 23 of chapter 14. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him. Now, I, I wanted to include that piece because we didn't get it there in John. Jesus made, he ordered, he commanded, he gave the directive, you guys go. This is not a situation where somehow they got separated from one another. The disciples got tired of waiting around. Oh, I don't know where he is. Let's just get going. Let's get in the boat and go. Jesus told them. In fact, he made them go. Go on ahead. Now, watch what Jesus does after he makes them go, and they start to uh, row across the sea. Verse 23, after he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. There are some who suggest that Jesus went up on that mountainside to pray up the storm. I don't think that's much of a reach. We are told that God created all things through Jesus. He had already demonstrated the ability to speak to the wind and the waves. That's recorded earlier in the Gospel of Matthew and Mark. There was that situation where the, the, the storm seemed to be overwhelming. They didn't think they would make it. Jesus was in the boat. He just simply stood up and said, quiet. Wouldn't you like to have that authority as a parent of young kids? <laughs> quiet. <laughs> and it happened. Jesus spoke to wind and waves. And they obeyed. Apparently, like inanimate objects who don't have a will and they obey. Wow. It doesn't seem like it's that much reach for Jesus to be praying and to ask that God would stir up a storm for his purposes. But I, conject, I conjecture. Okay, so that brings us to the crisis. And I want you to know clearly that the crisis is not something that the apostles dreamed up. Uh, they are not being disobedient. They did not want this. They did not ask for this. And their actions don't seem to warrant this. 
we could lose that slide. Thank you. The crisis of the wind is overwhelming because it's so difficult. So in verse 18, we read it's a strong wind, and you might have a Bible translation that says it's a high wind. Literally, that's the word mega. It's a mega wind. Wow. This is a mega wind that these guys are in. And some geography helps us here. The Sea of Galilee is about 8 miles by 13 miles, and they've been rowing. Uh, we were told three or four miles, three and a half miles. They've probably been rowing for about six miles, they're, they're, six hours, and, and they're just not getting very far because this mega wind is pushing against them. Again and again, they face their own inadequacy, wondering if they're even going to make it. And even with this mega wind, the apostles noted that they, they are obedient. They're trying. They're trying to comply. Jesus said, go, and they're going. They're not going very far. And the going is very hard, but they're not doing anything wrong. They're trying to comply, and that means after six hours of rowing and getting almost nowhere, they are trusting that Jesus somehow knows what he's talking about. Somehow this is going to work. Somehow obeying Jesus Christ is worth it. They keep at it. Keep rowing. Keep rowing in the face of a mega wind. They're trying to trust and obey as best as they can. That tells us that this crisis is only a crisis because they are obedient to Jesus. It would have been easier if they had abandoned ship, or at least abandoned the journey. Maybe never even had taken the journey. That would have been easier. But it doesn't seem, as you read the Gospels, that God is all that interested in us having a life of comfort. The crisis is only a crisis because they are obedient to Jesus, and yet this is a crisis of faith. Their obedience to Jesus has not been productive, and we have that today in a variety of situations in our lives. God bless the married people who honor their marriage covenant when it's hard. God bless the faithful Christians who stay single rather than run out on it ahead to achieve their own will. God bless the faithful Christians who pray and pray and pray and are still waiting for what seems to be some kind of an answer. God bless the faithful Christians who do not receive the, the life that they wanted, but are learning new dimensions of God's faithfulness to them. God bless you as you pursue Jesus. Well, this brings us to the climax and it's simply this, Jesus showed up. Interesting that when Jesus showed up, they didn't smack each other with high fives or fisty, fisty pumps. Jesus showed up and they were afraid. Isn't that what they wanted? Jesus, help us. Jesus is there, we're afraid. Let's look at verse 19. When they had rowed three or three and a half miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were afraid. Jesus is showing them who he is. He has told them who he is. Now he's showing them who he is. Remember that Jesus said things that only God can say, and Jesus did things that only God can do. 
And we have both of these in the climax of that passage, afraid. They realize once again they are in the presence of a holy God. They just don't have any categories to process this. God alone is holy, and that separates him from all of creation, and Jesus is God incarnate. There's never been anybody like Jesus. They just cannot process the holiness of Jesus, not to mention his power, his deity, his sovereignty, all on display as he walks across the water and simply gets into their boat. They were exhausted. They were stripped of every last vestige of self-confidence. And then Jesus showed up. And when they saw Jesus clearly put his power on display, as well as his sovereignty and deity and holiness, they were afraid. Why? It might be as simple as this. God is fearsome in his holiness. There is no one like God, and therefore there is no one like Jesus. Time spent with Jesus pointed to his deity, and time spent in this crisis revealed their frailty. Again, for the better part of over two, of two, of two years, Jesus, their, their view, they have been with Jesus, but their view of Jesus has been too small. And in order to reorient them, Jesus needs to disorient everything about them. What you thought worked no longer works. The way you thought it would be from now till evermore, not going to happen that way. Jesus is on the scene. Everything has changed. They needed this crisis to correct the overestimation of themselves and the underestimation of Jesus. They needed to know that Jesus was God incarnate, and they needed to know that by way of experience, so that what they think and what they feel would be in agreement with reality. And when they finally were stripped of their self-confidence, they were able to see Jesus for who he really was. Keep in mind, this episode equals is written down in Matthew 14. That means a lot has happened. They saw Jesus give life to a dead man in Luke chapter 7. And then in Luke chapter 8, as if they needed another lesson at the same thing, they saw Jesus give life to a dead girl. Did that not move the needle? Evidently, the disciples need an experience that brought together a display of deity and a dismantling of pride. And this accomplished that. In that hopeless moment, hope was found in the, in the person of Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you, have you ever had such a moment? Have you ever been broken and hopeless? Have you ever trembled in the presence of a holy God? Here's something the apostles knew from Scripture way back in the Old Testament book of, of uh, Deuteronomy. Chapter 4, verse 24, and this is repeated in um, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 29. Uh, God is described as a consuming fire. Oh, this is not a God to trifle with. 
God is our judge. He sees all and he knows all, and that includes what we think, feel, and do. Now watch the abrupt change in this story. We just read off, finished at 19, so let's pick it up with verse 20. But Jesus said to them, it is I. Don't be afraid. What's the reason for being afraid? It is I. I am here. Jesus did not calm the storm right then. He said, hey, never, I'll just do that thing again where I speak to the water and it's going to go away. Didn't say anything like that. As far as we know, nothing was done until Jesus was in the boat. They just simply got to the other side. Jesus says, it is I. Don't be afraid. Now, last week, we were, or last time we were together, we, were, uh, we read ahead a bit and worked ahead and looked at uh, Jesus saying, the first of seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. We looked at that the last time we were together. And we'll complete John chapter 6 next week. But I am the bread of life. That's the first of seven times Jesus says, I am something. And I took you back to Exodus chapter 3, where Moses is first encountering the God of the Bible. And he sees a burning bush that's on fire. He's intrigued and curious because the bush is not actually being consumed by the fire. It's just flaming. He walks over there. The Lord speaks to him. And in that conversation, God gives his personal name, I am. And you could expand it, I am that I am. In other words, God is the self-defining one. He will not be defined by anyone. There is no one sovereign like God. And, and God is letting Moses know that God is the boss of Pharaoh and it's not the other way around. I am. In, in the Hebrew language, that became the name of God where they wrote it down. And, and over time, they, they felt like this name was too holy to pronounce, too holy to write down. And so instead of writing Yahweh, or you might have an old English translation, Jehovah, instead of writing that, they would write Adonai, which is just another name that means Lord or Sir, Master, Captain, something like that. It's lesser. You could pronounce that, but you knew that they were talking about Yahweh here. Well, 200 years prior to the time of Christ, they bring it over to, to the Greek language because, thank you, Alexander, Helen, Alexander the Great wanted to Hellenize everybody and have them all speak one language, and that was Greek. And so instead of writing down the consonants of I am, Yahweh, they wrote down the words I am, which in the Greek language is ego, me. That's what Jesus said right here. So when he's, it comes across as it is I, he is saying, ego, a me. I am God. Don't be afraid. It's interesting that we have so many reminders in Scripture to not be afraid. I, you, could, you, know, you could find some platitudes about this, but I think there's 365, one for every day of the year. Don't be afraid. This is the best. Jesus is God. Don't be afraid. Wow. So seeing Jesus in this way and hearing Jesus apply God's name to himself and declare I am, they experience a unique intimacy with God. In other words, they, they encounter something that up to this point, really, no one, or, no one on earth has encountered this situation before. 
So they, 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 they meet, and they have never seen anything quite like this before. They haven't even heard the I am thing before. They, they, they meet Jesus in a new and deeper way, and it's profound. It's life-changing for them. And that, that intimacy, hearing something and seeing something that they previously had not heard and previously had not seen, that experience allows, that experience of intimacy, I should say, allows them to understand the transcendence of God in a new and deeper way as well. Remember, intimacy, God is with you. Transcendence. The God of the universe who dwells in all immensity is present with you. Wow. Jesus let them um, experience their own frailty so that they could understand that he is coming to them, not just as the God of the universe, but as their friend. Don't be afraid. It is I. The God of the Bible, who is fearsome in his holiness, comes to us as a friend in Christ. In the Gospel of Mark, there is a, a, this is written down in three, three of the Gospels. So in, in the Gospel of, of Mark, um, this one is written down and, and Mark adds his own commentary saying that they were afraid because their hearts were hard, they had not understood the lesson of the loaves. You notice we, we worked through the loaves last time we were together. That, that was to have a lingering lesson for them, that Jesus is God. He creates bread where bread had not existed before. And they actually participated in this miraculous moment. They had the baskets that they were distributing, and these baskets never emptied of bread. They saw it. They, they practically had their hands on the miracle, but evidently that was quite not enough. They needed to be stripped of self-confidence and experience their frailty once again, and then be in the midst of a dire situation, and then they could understand the depth of who God really is. In this event, it is clear that Jesus initiated the act of drawing near to people. They have done nothing to warrant this visit with Jesus Christ. The apostles, as far as we know, did not pray. They did not seek the Lord. I've looked at the other passages, did not pray, did not seek the Lord, and yet Jesus came to them. Oh, this desire that God has to be with his people runs as a common, common, prevalent theme throughout Scripture. It's a recurring theme that occurs in the New Te- uh, excuse me, occurs in the Old Testament about 30 times. That God promises or predicts that he will be the God of these people, and these people, meaning Israel, will be his and belong to him. In the very beginning, the formation of God's people, again in the book of Exodus, chapter 6, when Moses is, is relaying for the very first time the message that he heard from, from uh, God to the Israelites, not to Pharaoh. 
So he's talking to the Israelites and, and just simply debriefing and trying to explain. He says, God told me this, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Leviticus chapter 26, 11 and 12, I will make my dwelling among you. I will walk among you. I will be your God and you shall be my people. Something like that is repeated seven times in Jeremiah, seven more times in Ezekiel, as if we needed to have it repeated. Yeah, we do. God's desire is to be with his people. He, he sent Jesus for relationship. God created you for relationship. God brought you here this morning to strengthen and enhance the relationship that he enjoys with you. He's not about rules. He's about relationship. John chapter 1, verse 14, we looked at this. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God is here. God drew near to us. The Apostle Paul picked up on this, and when he wrote 2 Corinthians, yes, there's another letter coming after 1 Corinthians. When he wrote 2 Corinthians, he quoted both Leviticus and Jeremiah, and he said it this way, God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they will be my people, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 16. All the way through to the very last book of the Bible, almost to the last page of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. They know this, but they see I am, and they are afraid. Until Jesus pronounces, don't be afraid. Because the God that we should fear in his holiness comes to us as a friend in Christ. How can that be? Jesus knows even at that moment that everything that could somehow possibly be a barrier between people and God will be paid for on the cross. And that cross is as good as come. It is a certainty. And so Jesus can pronounce don't be afraid. Otherwise, without the cross, you're on your own. Holy moly, be afraid of a God who can judge. It is fitting that Jesus identified himself in this way when he walked on water. And again, this is to be expected if you are God. Jesus is not just a prophet, not just a good man, not just somebody who is understood and had a very nice mission, though it didn't work out. Jesus is God incarnate, and that means he created the universe. He created water. He created lakes and seas and even the Sea of Galilee. John chapter 1, verse 3, we read this earlier when we first began, says this, through him, meaning through Jesus, all things were made, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. Jesus, the creator of lakes and seas, has the inherent ability to walk on water. There are some who suggest that Jesus never said he was God. I don't know how you read John chapter 6 and still assume that. Jesus said it, 
and he showed it, and the disciples believed it. When Jesus is present, no person and no thing is greater than Jesus. There is nothing that can diminish the outworking of the plan of God in Christ. And there is no fear in Christ because there is no fear in Jesus. There is no fear in the heart of God, not an ounce. Sometimes, in order to learn this, you need to step into an experience that is fearsome. And you will be afraid. But if you are in the will of God, Jesus will meet you there. I can say that, and you can agree with that. But I think you need to experience that to own it. You might know a lot about Jesus. Even better, to know him personally. Do you know him personally this morning? You can. Let's pray together. If it's your need to simply begin, not, not, not begin and end, but, but to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ, I can tell you some things that I, I wish I had heard when I was a young person. God loves you. God, God has brought you into this building this morning so you could hear this from John chapter 6 to your heart. God loves you. And he is stronger than anything that you think could prevent you from knowing him. God is holier than you've ever imagined. Bad news, you are more sinful than you have ever imagined. But God comes to you as a friend in Christ because Jesus has paid for every ounce of sin that could somehow stand between you and God. Jesus has paid it all. If it's your need this morning to begin a relationship with Jesus Christ, please understand God has already taken the initiative. He has sent Jesus and he has drawn near. And now you simply receive. Dear God, this morning I, I think some things were said. I finally, I finally got it. I finally understand. I have a need that only you can meet. And it's Jesus that I want because it's Jesus that I need. For far too long, I've been running the path of self-reliance, self-determination, independent from you. I admit it, I was wrong, I repent. Jesus, come into my life to be my Lord and my Savior. Help me to walk with you the rest of my journey here on earth. For all of us, God, we might have a few days, we might have a few years, we might have a generation yet to live. Help us to live that life well. 
to be obedient even when it's hard and heavy and confusing and we don't understand to be obedient still. Knowing that you, Jesus Christ, are our Lord and we have nothing to be afraid of in the will of God. Thank you, God, that you are transcendent. You hold the universe in your hands, so to speak, and it is easy for you to watch over the affairs of the universe. And yet you are personal. It is easy for you to know the deepest secrets, the most private aspects of our hearts. And you love us still. Thank you, God, for this experience that the apostles went through and endured so that we could read about it and learn from it. In Jesus' name I bring this prayer, amen.